Welcome to everyone. It's good to be here on this beautiful day at Franklin College. I'm glad it's today and not yesterday. Yesterday was a little rainy. Um, Mr. Harwell, glad you could be here. Uh, you have 15 minutes with five minutes reserved for rebuttal. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, Mr. Pierce, co-counsel. Um, Megan Smith. Uh, counsel for the appellee, and with you, you have Carolyn Templeton and Giovanni Miramontes. All right. We're here in the case of James A. Chigason III versus State of Indiana. Um, counsel for the appellant, the case is with you. May it please the court. On January 18, 1998, three people were found dead in a known drug house in, Rich in Hammond, Indiana. No one was charged in this offense until 2021 when the state of Indiana charged James Higgison. The trial court thereafter erred in denying James Higgison's motion to dismiss. When James Higgison moved to dismiss this case based on the lack of new evidence that was produced after those 23 years a lack of new evidence that even the lead investigator admitted no new evidence was found in 23 years. From the beginning of the state's investigation, they knew that James Higgison was in that known drug house purchasing drugs from the deceased. They knew that he was there that night with David Copley. They knew that James Higgison admitted to being in the house that day. They knew that David Copley, three months after the night in question, pegged both James Higgison and David Copley as being in the home, and they knew that they had multiple eyewitnesses placing the two of them there. Despite all of that evidence, three different prosecutors declined to file charges. Yet, over the course of 23 years, the state did nothing further on the case. It was not until 23 years later does the state of Indiana file these charges after conducting further DNA testing? Mr. DNA Har Mr. Harwell, there is no statute of limitations on the crime of murder, is there? That is correct, Your Honor. Thank you. The issue in this case comes down to the fact that this case could have been filed at any time during those 23 years. The only new evidence, if we want to consider it that, was this DNA testing that was, to be, that was done. But that even that <coughs> DNA testing could have been done anywhere between three to eight years prior, depending on how we want to consider that DNA testing. The reason we can look at anywhere between three to eight years is because that DNA method became available eight years before it was actually done, but the state of Indiana itself did not actually have it available in the lab until three years before it was done. So regardless of which standard we want to use, there was a significant time lag before the state of Indiana actually used it. What, that, is, 
what are, what are the rules or what is the law or the standards that we have to look at to determine whether or not a prosecution should have been brought earlier? The determination that this court would end up falling under is whether or not there was any deliberate delay by the state that would gain a tactical advantage for, or some other impermissible reason. Does this case meet that test? Admittedly, we cannot show that there was some sort of actual deliberate delay by the states. But if we look at this court's precedent in Barnett, this court, whether intentionally or not, also threw in another wrinkle. In Barnett, this court also said that in Barnett, there was no showing of actual prejudice, even though in Barnett, this court conceded, Barnett also could not show that there was any deliberate delay. This case is exactly like Barnett, because in here, while we cannot show any actual deliberate delay, we can show prejudice. Okay, let's, when you talk about prejudice, it, it's my understanding that there were a, a couple of witnesses who may not have been available for testimony at trial. Um, what was the evidence that was presented with respect to their uh, unavailability? So with regards to each of those witnesses, each of those witnesses were actually deceased in this, in this case. Well, Marlene was deceased. She's Hickerson's grandmother, right? That is correct. What about this Mr. Wilson? There's some evidence to suggest that he was in prison in Michigan. Correct. With, with regards to Mr. Wilson, it's, it's debated whether or not he was either deceased or whether he was in prison. I, we would concede. Isn't it, isn't it the state's, I mean, to, to go back kind of to the standard, it's this, or isn't it your client's burden to show this actual and substantial prejudice? Correct. Right. So then um, with Mr. Wilson then continuing on with Mr. Wilson, was it known whether he was in prison, wasn't in prison, or, or whereabouts unknown? What's the story? Unfortunately, as to Mr. Wilson, it is not known. But we would actually concede that as to each of the unavailable witnesses, Mr. Wilson's the least important. And frankly, as, as to the defense, he's probably the one that doesn't matter. Mr. Hartwell, we're in appellate court. We're looking at what the trial judge did. Correct. The trial judge denied the motion to dismiss. What is our standard re of review on appeal from the trial court's denial of the motion to dismiss? It would be an abuse of discretion, Your Honor. And here, what we'd be most concerned about with regards to the witness would be both Marlene Dodge and even more importantly, C.W. Smith. C.W. Smith probably being the most important because C.W. Smith was another suspect. C.W. Smith was an individual who was at the house in question that night. He was in an active relationship with one of the decedents. C.W. Smith was an individual who was referred to for investigation in this case. C.W. Smith also failed his polygraph examination in this case. And C.W. Smith, they attempted to get further DNA testing on this case. By the time they tried to get that DNA testing, he had already passed away. We don't know, do we, what Mr. Smith would, he may, may not have testified. He may have taken the Fifth Amendment. I mean, we don't know what evidence he would have offered that would tend to exonerate Mr. Higgison, do we? 
Well, I think as to Mr. Smith, Your Honor, we don't even need his testimony. For Mr. Smith, what's important is that DNA testing. That is what prejudices Mr. Higgison here, is the lack of availability for that DNA testing by the time it came around for Mr. Higgison's trial. The DNA testing is the fingernails of the victim, correct? Correct. And under the fingernails, I think in 2008, there was testing that couldn't exclude Mr. Higgison. And then a new batch of testing was done, I think you said approximately three years prior to the charges that included or definitely substantially identified Mr. Higgison as having the DNA material under the fingernails, correct? The DNA testing in 2020 only provided limited support that it was Mr. Higgison. It was that he could not be excluded. Correct. And so the presence or non-presence of Mr. Smith's DNA would be relevant how? So with Mr. Smith, what would be relevant is, for all we know, is his DNA test could have provided support that he is one of the other unknown contributors to that DNA. Because we do still have another unknown contributor as to the DNA under Ms. Temez's nails. And with that, that is a significant contributor because with Mr. Higgison, he is only being found as a limited contributor here. Mr. Higgison had admitted, hadn't he, that he had been at that residence several times. He bought crack cocaine, I think maybe three times that day. He even came back with a shotgun that he used to pay for the last purchase of crack cocaine, correct? Exactly, Your Honor. So your client admitted that he had been at that property, at that residence, several times on the day in question, right? Correct, Your Honor. Okay, well, Mr. Smith would not have excluded your client from being there. There's nothing that would have excluded Mr. Higgison from being there, is there? He would not. But each of those things also explain why you would see Mr. Higgison's DNA within Ms. Temez's fingernails. These are individuals that were exchanging drugs with one another, possibly doing drugs with one another. They were exchanging money. All of those things would explain why you would see a limited DNA present, and they were also exchanging that shotgun. So all of those things tell us why we would see that DNA. But we also know that, again, Mr. Higgison only had limited DNA, which would tell us, with all that DNA exchange, why we would see only a limited source of DNA. But we could see somebody like Mr. Smith, if he is present, and he has a more substantial DNA, and we already have a failed polygraph. We know he has a relationship with the individual. We know he was there on the night in question. All of these things would lead support to him being involved with the murder, and those things would be substantial information for the jury to know had that information been available. Well, let's step back and look at the motion to dismiss, which is what you're challenging here. Correct. And you're correct that our standard of review is abuse of discretion. An abuse of discretion occurs when the ruling of the trial court is clearly against the logic and effect of the facts and circumstances before the court or is contrary to law. Which of the two prongs of the abuse of discretion standard are you relying on? 
I think we're looking at both in this case. I think we're looking at both the facts and the law here. When we look at the facts, I think the facts do not support the court's ruling. Because here, we see how the lack of Marlene Dodge being present to be able to testify for Mr. Higgison, we see the effect of that on the evidence what, what would her testimony have been? That would be his grandmother. Correct. And she, she answered the first telephone call from Mr. Copley, correct? That, if we believe the state's argument, that would have been the that would have been what she would be able to answer for us. Would the trial court not have had to take into account not just the evidence that you've discussed up to this point, but also to the fact that there was a live witness who was present at the time and testified that he and Mr. Higgison had participated in this heinous crime? Wouldn't the court also have to look at that evidence or just at the evidence that you've described? They, I, they would have to look at both in this situation because you have to take into account what the possible testimony from Marlene Dodge would be and what she would have to offer, especially in a situation like this where we're talking about disputed evidence like the alleged call between Copley and Higgison where Marlene Dodge is allegedly involved. Can, because that is where Marlene Dodge becomes involved. Okay, can, could we possibly move on to what was your first, I think your first point in your brief, or at least it was the authentication of the digital recording? And you objected on numerous occasions to the digital recording at trial? Yes. So as to the authentication of the calls, the biggest issue comes into the fact that as to the call, with, with those calls, the number one thing we have to touch on is the fact that we do not know two things. One, we never heard at trial the quality of the calls. The state openly admits at trial that the calls were of such poor quality that those calls had to be sent out in order to be enhanced. And that was why they were never played. And that is why those calls were never heard by the jury. And that's why even defense counsel never ends up playing them. And, and as a result, they were not of such clarity that they could be heard. And that alone defeats that entire prong. So for that foundation to ever be laid by the state. But doesn't that come down to the weight? I mean, because were they given, was the jury given transcripts or, or what testimony about the phone calls was put in? Well, that, beca that becomes the other issue there is the transcripts that this, that the jury was provided were the original transcripts made from those original audio back in 1998. The audio that it was now supposedly so impossible to listen to that they couldn't be played. Not the audio that they were now played in 2021 based on this enhanced audio that was sent to the IRS. Was an audio played though? An audio was played. And that was the digital audio? It was. And your objection is that there was an inadequate foundation for the digital audio? Based on the enhancements, yes. Well, there was a lot of discussion between trial counsel and the court about this. And at one point, the trial court says that Mr. Copley has authenticated the recorded. He said it's his voice and that this was the conversation he conducted. First time he called Marlene, second time he called Melissa. Both times he testified, he talked to the defendant. The jury was free to believe or disbelieve him, but didn't he authenticate the recordings by saying, yeah, that's my voice and that's my phone call? He did say it was his phone call. He, at no point does Copley or, um, 
or even Detective Field and say they went back and listened to the new recordings, though. But did, wasn't there a state witness that it indicated they had listened and that the digital version was the same as the cassette version? Nobody ever testifies that they compare the two recordings. Okay. Could this uh, recording have been introduced from your point of view with an adequate foundation entirely upon the testimony of Mr. Copley, who was a party to the phone call? If he compared the two recordings, absolutely. Much like didn't he say that though? That was me, that was my voice, I was on that call, those are the words I spoke? I mean, is, is that not authentication? May I conclude, Your Honor? Oh, yes, you may. It, it will not come off for five minutes. If, if Mr. Copley had compared the two audios together, yes, that would be a fair argument. But since Mr. Copley never compared the two audios and he was simply relying on just the new enhanced audio to bring it into trial and compare it to the original transcripts, and he himself never actually authenticated the new transcripts either. The, tra the new transcripts were actually brought in through Detective Fielden. Because of that, that is where the authentication issue becomes an issue because they were using two separate people to bring them in and at the same time, they were not being brought in by all the same people that use them and nobody reviewed everything together. But the trial court did instruct the jury that the transcripts were to assist them in listening to the recording, but the, the only evidence that was real evidence was the recording itself. That is correct. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Smith? May it please the court. This court should affirm Higgison's convictions for murder for three reasons. First, Higgison's right to due process was not violated by the pre-charging delay because he did not suffer actual or substantial prejudice to his right to a fair trial and the state did not intentionally delay in charging Higgison to gain a tactical advantage. Second, the trial court did not abuse its discretion by either admitting the recorded phone calls between Higgison and Copley or by denying Higgison's request for a mistrial based on the trial court's characterization of those recordings to the jury. And finally, the trial court did not commit fundamental error by refusing to answer a question posed by the jury. What substantial difference was there uh, in the evidence between when Copley had the recorded phone calls until the actual time that Mr. Higgison went to trial? So first and foremost, the DNA evidence was the major linchpin that kind of started the chain of events of the additional evidence. Copley had never agreed to testify against Higgison up until uh, he, after he was charged in 2021. So there's, I don't believe that those phone calls- But do, would be, do you have to agree to testify against somebody? He could have been subpoenaed. He likely would have, I'm guessing, pled the fifth. Um, he could have pled the Fifth Amendment. I, there's no indication that though, I don't, I'm not sure that those phone calls would have been admissible without Copley's testimony or without Copley there to authenticate those phone calls. Um, but there are other ways to do it. I mean, there's limited use immunity. There's all sorts of things like that, isn't there, in order to get somebody to testify? There could have been, but th there's no guarantee that, he, that that would have happened. And a prosecutor's belief that further investigation is warranted to solidify a case 
is a reason for a pre-indictment delay. It is a reason, uh, it is a justifiable reason for a delay. And prosecutors, you know, they know their communities, they know the jury pools, and they are able to look at the evidence that they have available at the time and make the determination that that evidence is not going to be sufficient to obtain a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. And this court, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, has said that that is just a justified reason for a delay. Ms. Smith, help me with the timeline now. Y yes, Mr. Your Honor. Mr. Copley was in a halfway house at the Salvation Army. He had, yes. a, chat, he had a chat with an FBI agent. And he, he was expressing a, a guilty conscience. Did that occur in 1998, close to, closely after the time the, the murders had taken place? I don't believe Copley actually spoke with an FBI agent. I believe it was a family member, and then the FBI agent reported that to Detective Fielden, and then Detective Fielden spoke with Copley in May of 1998 while he was at the Salvation Army. Okay, when were the phone calls placed? First call placed to Mr. Higgison's grandmother, Marlene. Second phone call placed to Mr. Higgison's girlfriend, Melissa. When did they were? They were a couple days apart. But in what year did, the, did that did that occur? In, in May of 1998, Your Honor. And then one more question, please. Yes. When did Mr. Copley strike a deal with the state of Indiana that he would plead guilty to one murder and a sentence of 45 years and would testify at the trial against Mr. Higgison? In May of 2021. Now, was that after both Higgison and Copley were charged? Yes, Your Honor. They were, go ahead. They were both charged prior to that deal being cemented? Yes, they were both charged in January of 2021 based on the results of the DNA evidence that was received in June and November of 2020. The state then uh, brought charges and then based on that DNA evidence, I think it's reasonable to infer that that kind of sealed the deal with uh, Copley's proper agreement and his agreement to testify against Higginson. So, so even though Mr. Copley had indicated to a family member who had told an FBI agent that he was, he was worried, he had, a, I'll call it a consciousness of guilt, it wasn't until after he was charged with murder as a co-defendant with Mr. Higginson that he struck a deal with the state of Indiana. That's correct, Your Honor. And based on that, Higginson has not demonstrated actual or substantial prejudice or that the state intentionally delayed in charging him to gain a tactical advantage. And those were the two prongs that he had to demonstrate in order to have his motion to dismiss granted. Was there, as Judge Najib's indicated, we're, we're left with the record before the trial court on the motion to dismiss. So at that motion to dismiss, um, was there an explanation from the state as to what element technology may have played in the delay? Not, not specifically. The, the state did discuss that at the time that the, uh, the detective field and presented the case to the prosecutor in 1998, the prosecutor wanted uh, additional evidence to corroborate Copley's statements, and that at that point in time, they did not have it. And unfortunately, the case went cold and it, it stalled. Um, and then it, it appears that there is um, some evidence in the record that it was re-looked at again by detectives in 2002. Um, nothing appears to have come of that. And then Higginson was brought in for an interview in 2008. And during that interview, he makes the statement 
that his DNA would not be found on any of the victims. And six days later, law enforcement submits the samples for testing. And it, unfortunately, at that point in time, the technology was such that the results were inconclusive and the case stalled again. Um, in 2020, May of 2020, the case was uh, reassigned again as a cold case to separate detectives who began investigating again. Um, the items that were submitted in 2008 were resubmitted for testing due to advances in DNA testing technology, and additional items were also submitted for testing. Um, the officers did collect additional genetic samples from Levante Nunley, who was one of the drug dealers that was um, involved in that house, and Stan Welizeko, who was the homeowner and Elva Tamez's boyfriend. Um, they attempted to collect a, a sample from C.W. Smith um, to compare to the the samples that they were submitting in 2020. So the investigation did continue. Um, unfortunately, it is the nature of cold cases that this is how those investigations unfortunately can go. You mentioned an attempted uh, taking a sample from C.W. Smith, and that's the C.W. Smith that was identified by appellant as uh, a prejudicial witness who's now deceased. Yes, he was deceased at the time. Officers attempted to collect his sample. They reached out to his family members and his uh, family members refused to cooperate. Um, however, any uh, sample that they would have gotten uh, would not have supported his theory of defense. Uh, it, it wouldn't have helped Higgison at trial. C.W. Smith was engaged in a relationship with Elva Tamez. He was in the home. He was in the home earlier that night. It wouldn't have been strange for his DNA to be there. And the only place that the unknown sample was located was on the front door. And it wouldn't have been odd for C.W. Smith's DNA to be on a front door of a home that he frequented. Now, let me t ask you then additionally about these samples. There was there, DNA material was lifted from the victim's fingernails, correct? There, there was, that was one of the locations, yes. And is that the location of DNA that, um, linked Higgison and or Coakley to the victim? There were multiple uh, submissions that were linked to Coakley, and the, the limited support for Higgison was under the right fingernail of Elva Tamez, okay. as, as well as, Cop as Copley, but there were also additional samples that linked uh, David Copley. Uh, DNA evidence can be very, very helpful in a criminal investigation, either including somebody or excluding somebody. But can we look at some of the other evidence? Can we go back to Mr. Copley and the authentication issue, which is raised by the appellant? Um, in the state's brief at the bottom of page 25 and the top of page 26, it says the state's authentication for the digital copies was that Copley reviewed the recordings and verified that they, were fa they fairly and accurately reflect the phone calls based on his personal knowledge of the calls. Now, I, I think I understood, or maybe misunderstood, Mr. Harwell, that Copley did not review the recordings, that he simply said, that's my voice on the recording. I recognized the conversation. I participated in it. I placed these two phone calls to Marlene and Melissa. But the state says that he reviewed the recordings and verified that they fairly and accurately reflected the phone calls. 
I, I believe my opposing counsel's review of the record is incorrect. I do believe that, that David Copley reviewed the versions of the phone calls that were going to be published to the jury, and that can be found in the transcript, volume five, pages 185 to 87, and uh, page 209, where he discusses that, that he reviewed them and that that is a true and accurate version of the phone call he participated in in 1998. So his authentication meant, went beyond merely saying, yeah, that's the call I placed and that's my voice on the call. Uh, yes, and, and I believe that David Copley alone was sufficient to authenticate the contents of the phone call. Detective Fielden, Agent Bushery, and Keisha Ricketts were there to lay the chain of custody for the admission of those phone calls. And none of those witnesses were required to authenticate the contents because we the state presented David Copley for that purpose and he was the only one that needed to do so. Mr. Harwell did not have time to address this and I'm sure he will when he returns to the podium but I have a question about the jury goes into deliberations and the jury submits two questions to the trial court. The trial court says you've got all the evidence in front of you to make your decision and that is not challenged by the appellant but for, the jury sends a message out says, for our clarification, if we believe the defendant was present but did not inflict any blows on one or more of the counts being considered, would that be guilty or not guilty under Indiana law? And the trial court said, I can't answer that question. Now, what's the state's position on the trial court's uh, refusal to answer the question posed by the jury during deliberations? That's question number two. Our, our first position is that this issue has been waived by Mr. Higgison. Uh, first, by failing to object to the trial court, uh, re refusing to answer it below, and by failing to propose the accomplice liability instruction that he now presents or suggests on appeal should have been well, given by the trial court. Well, let me jump in. The, the way the uh, jury questions were presented to counsel was after the fact, correct? It, it was. So there was no contemporaneous ability of uh, defense counsel to raise the objection to the questions because really what had happened, the bailiff, I think, had informed the court that there was a return of verdict. And in that time between that and the jury re-entering the courtroom for the reading of the verdict, the trial court judge had, uh, informed after the fact that there have been two jury questions and what the trial court's response to those two jury questions were, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And when the trial court... So um, how do we get the genie back in the bottle? It, when the trial court made a record of that and then the... Higginson never expressed any dissatisfaction with the trial court's Well, even if approach. he had, what's, what's the trial court's ability to cure at that point? At that point, they could have sent the jury back. The verdict had not been read. The, the, the jury could have sent back, been sent back, excuse me, Your Honor, for further deliberations. But the, even, though no the, one, even though the horse was out of the barn, so to speak, or the toothpaste out of the tube, the uh, the, of the even after the fact, or genie out of the bottle, <laughs> yeah. whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, even at that point, after the fact, Higginson did not object. That, that's correct. And Higginson did concede in his... Um, a reply brief that he was required to argue fundamental error and that he failed to do so um, in his opening brief. And as we know, failure to argue fundamental error in an opening brief does waive that issue. Let me ask um, you a substantive question. Though. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, there seems to be a suggestion that what the jury was getting at was accomplice liability. Was there any evidence in the record that would have supported an accomplice liability instruction? 
I believe it would have been improper to instruct the jury on accomplice liability because that wasn't raised, argued, or presented by either party. The state didn't present that as a theory of liability, and I believe it would have been improper to instruct the jury on a theory of liability that the defendant did not have notice or opportunity to defend against. So what you're saying is that at the end of the trial, before the case went to the jury, if the defendant had tendered an accomplice liability instruction, there was no evidence in the record that would have supported that instruction. All, all of the evidence in the record is that he was a principal actor. Um, I, an accomplice liability instruction would have given the state an easier avenue for conviction, so had he presented that, I don't know that the state would have objected to giving that instruction, um, because at that point then they don't have to demonstrate that he personally inflicted any of those injuries, but simply aided, induced, or caused David Copley to either inflict the injuries, or because he was charged with felony murder, they don't even have to prove that much. All they have to prove is that, Dave, that he aided, induced, or caused David Copley to commit a robbery that resulted in death. Would there ever, was there a possibility or would there have been a possibility for a freestanding instruction which simply said that mere presence at the scene of a crime does not confer criminal liability upon that person? As mere presence without more. I believe that would also have been improper, Your Honor, because that would only have taken a fraction of the accomplice liability instruction. Maybe and the, the Indiana's preferred practice is to give the pattern instruction, which is significantly longer than that one portion. That would be a partial instruction. Then. That's right, Your Honor. Thank you. All right. If there are no further questions, the state would respectfully request that this court affirm Higginson's convictions for murder. I've got a question on the foundation of the recordings. I just want to make sure I'm correct in understanding what uh, the state's position is with respect to authentication of the, because we have the cassette tapes. And my understanding is, I think it's Detective uh, Fielden. And the, uh, those were admitted as an exhibit, were they not, the cassette tapes? And he identified them as the original cassette tapes from 98. Yes, yeah, so if I could, Your Honor, the original recordings were admitted as cassette tapes, as were the processed copies that Agent Bushery processed, and then the digital copy that um, Keisha Ricketts made from the original recording. Those were all admitted as exhibits at trial. And did Ricketts testify as to the contents of the digital and the contents of the cassette being the same? She did. She testified that the digitization did not change the sound quality or the words. And that's um, transcript volume five, pages 109 to 110. Okay. And then the transcript was um, utilized by the jury, but not as an exhibit and didn't go back with them for deliberations. That's right, it was a demonstrative and not substantive exhibit. Okay. If there are no further questions. Anything additional? Then Thank the you. state would respectfully request that this court affirm Higginson's convictions for murder. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Harwell, you have five minutes left for rebuttal. I'll start first with the ar argument regarding Copley's authentication. I'd start first by acknowledging that Copley 
while he does talk about both recordings, he never says he listened to both recordings again in 2021 or in any way compares the two. So that's where we have to draw a very fine distinction when we're talking about his authentication at the time of trial. So what did, what did he authenticate? Did he authenticate the transcript? He authenticated the, the new enhanced version prior to trial in 2022. So, so he had to listen to some of it? The enhanced audio, yes. The enhanced one. He did not listen to the original 1998 recording. Okay. And that was due to the poor quality of that recording, the whole reason it was enhanced. But if he authenticated it, I'm, I don't see the distinction, I guess. The distinction here is that the 1998 recording was not, listened, was not able to be listened to anymore. That was the whole reason why it had to be enhanced. And that is the, that is the entire problem here in the, in the admission of the new recordings is nobody was able to compare the two. Yet both were admitted, but the jury actually never heard the original recordings. And yet they compared transcripts to the original or to these new enhanced recordings. But we don't actually know that the two are the same. There's no record actually ever made of, the, of those two. So when we look at the standard for authentication, part of that requirement is that you have to have sufficient clarity, and we don't actually know that when we're well, looking at- Who was the at, sponsoring witness for the enhancement? The sponsoring witness was David Copley. Who performed, did the, the individual who performed the enhancement testify? As, as the state just referred to, she was present and she talked about the, and she talked about the enhancements, but she, but they were not admitted through her. They were admitted through David Copley. She did say they were one and the same though, right? Did she, according to what the state just said, she said there was no difference in the content between the original and the digital version. That was her testimony, yes. But nobody ever compared the two, none of the original actors, none of, uh, they were never compared to the transcripts. The transcripts were simply admitted, um, just like with David Copley's testimony. He never actually listened to the two. And so that's the issue that we get into with then the originals being admitted, but not actually published and not actually being listened to because of the fact that they can be listened to. Um, so that is simply why we continue to take issue with the fact that those were admitted and we ask that that, that part of the court's ruling and those being admitted uh, be reversed. Well, let's say, let's say this was reversed and it went back, then there are two ways to solve this. One is not introduce any copy of the telephone call, the digital or the original. The other would be to connect this all up the way you think it should have been done in the first place, right? Correct. But that's is, what would happen at a retrial if we were to reverse and remand on that basis. Exactly. Okay. But wasn't there other testimony? I mean, Copley, his credibility as a witness was part of this. No one ever questioned that Marlene was the grandmother and Melissa was the girlfriend of the defendant, right? Correct. Okay. As to the jury question, we do have to concede one issue, and that is... In our reply brief, as the state just highlighted, we did indicate fundamental error, but that was, that was an error in our reply brief. We shouldn't have done that. In that, in, um, after trial, Higgison did file a motion to correct error. So we would say at this point, no, that that should not have been fundamental error because Higgison did preserve the issue after trial. He did attempt to remedy the situation. As this court has highlighted, 
Higgison, there was nothing he could have done. At that point, the horse was out of the barn. The jury had already come back. They had a verdict. There would have been zero point in doing anything else. At that point, there was nothing further that could have been done to send this to send this jury back to further deliberate. They had already made a decision. But but let's unpack this and pretend that we could go back and this didn't happen. Looking at this from the front end on the merits, the statute says that if after the jury retires for deliberation, the jury desires to be informed as to any point of law arising in the case. And the only way that would apply would be if the question of accessory liability had arisen in the case. And Mr. Higgison never tendered a uh, instruction on accessory liability. In other words, accessory liability was apparently not an issue in the case. So the statute, reading it on the face of it, wouldn't have applied, would it? May I finish, please. Your Oh, yeah, please. It to answer your question, Your Honor, the, as far as that question and the way it came up at trial, I think the reason the jury goes there, uh, the best we can tell from the record, is Copley's statement was, James Higgison did this, and he got me involved in it, and he threatened me to participate. The best we can tell is, somewhere along the lines, this jury twisted that, and they thought, no. Copley was the one involved, and he got Higgison involved, and Higgison was just there. Well, what you're saying is that the jury was raising the accessory liability issue, which was not raised at trial, and if, if a jury instruction on accessory liability had been tendered, it would have been denied. That's, I, where, we, that's where we have to go with this in order to decide whether the, the there, first, whether there was error, and, and if the error could have been corrected, where would we have ended up? I think in this situation, neither party anticipated the jury to go that direction. But had they had, they had the foresight to know a jury might have gone that direction, they would have ended up in, in a different place. But it certainly would have been a situation where the jury would have possibly come back with a very different verdict. And that's where it became a very important situation for the jury and for the defense counsel to have the opportunity to be heard on that issue. But in every case, there has to be a factual basis in the record to support the jury instruction. Correct. Okay. And I think here they would have had that. So we do ask this court to reverse the verdicts in this case and to um, and to reverse Mr. Higgison's convictions. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Um, this concludes the official part of the oral argument in this case. In just a moment, we will come forward and answer questions that the audience might have, but we cannot answer any questions about this case. So if you have a bunch of those, we can't answer those. Um, I'd like to thank both counsel for their advocacy and Madam Bailiff. All right.